If you would, turn to Jude 1. That's going to be our text this morning. It's been said that the book of Jude is perhaps one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. And certainly it's in a group of books that because of their brevity get less attention. The, that group includes Philemon and uh, Second and Third John as well. But what we've got to remember is these brief letters contain the words of God. Though it's brief, Jude, only 25 verses, um, I think another reason that it's neglected is because in some ways it's seemed, it seems strange to even some teachers because they're not sure what to do with the fact that it quotes some extra-biblical uh, Jewish documents of the time. And finally, though, I, I don't think it's just that it's brief or that uh, some folks don't know what to do with some of the citations. I think the most prominent reason that this letter is neglected is because the message of judgment that it contains to evil people who are creeping in to corrupt the church, and that's so alien, so foreign uh, to today's sentimentality. The motto of today is that the most important thing is that you'd be nice, and the most important trait that people want to see is that you're open-minded. Steve Taylor, a modern poet, once wrote that some people are so open-minded that their brains leaked out, and I agree. <laughs> Jude's message of judgment is received in our day and time as, a as a intolerant and the opposite of how most people in our day and time have come to understand the message of love and grace that's proclaimed elsewhere in the New Testament. But we know we must wrestle to understand the whole counsel of God so that we can truly understand what God has revealed to his people and so that we can truly know his love and grace. With that being said, this short letter deserves to be read. It needs to be studied and it needs to be applied to our lives. In his commentary on Jude, Tom Schreiner wrote, Quote, some of the most beautiful statements about God's sustaining grace are found in Jude. And they shine with greater brilliance when contrasted with the false teachers who had departed from the Christian faith. We must not miss that this message of judgment is especially relevant to us today. Because far too many of our churches are prone to that sentimentality that I mentioned earlier. Far too many of our churches suffer from biblical illiteracy, and too often we fail to take a hard stance on any false teaching because we misunderstand the biblical definition of love, and instead we conflate it with the idea of unity for unity's sake. And Jude's letter reminds us that false teaching and sinfulness have dire consequences. So we should not neglect this letter, nor should we relegate Jude's words to that of just a grumpy old man that wants, to, um, that wants to threaten those that he dislikes with judgment. That simply doesn't define Jude's approach. And it's easy to see that his words instead are really a warning plea 
to beloved brothers so that they would be on guard against a terrible foe. Jude was written so that believers would contend for the faith that was given to them and so that they would stay in God's word at not only a crucial time in their lives, but at a crucial time in the life of their church. So this message comes to us for the exact same reasons. Still today, we have to be on guard against the same terrible foe. So if you would stand to your feet, we'll read together the living and active Word of God, beginning in Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay in their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains of gloomy, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it be accepted as such, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we stand before you in this congregation, knowing that your word will not return empty, but it will accomplish everything that you have purposed for it to accomplish. We pray that your word would illuminate our path as we attempt to glorify you in our lives every day. Lord, give us a heart for the lost, for those who do not yet see their own desperation, who do not yet see your beauty. Lord of the harvest, we pray that you would send laborers into your fields. Father, our world, our nation in particular, is desperately sick. Our flagship institutions of higher education have lost the moral clarity to condemn obvious and reckless evil in this world. We pray that you, because only you can, send a renewal of gospel-centered preaching, that you would regenerate many hearts in our city, in our state, in our nation, and around this world. Please help us that you have graciously saved to submit to your word and to grow in grace and truth. And we ask all these things in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Before we get started, I want to give a little primer on something that's clearly an overarching theme that's going on in this letter. It's this idea of concursus day or divine concurrence. I know we've touched on that doctrine before. I know Pastor Jay has. See, there's this perceived difficulty when it comes to the idea of the sovereignty of God, but it's only a perceived difficulty because we know that the Lord is sovereign over all things, and we use the term divine concurrence to explain how both God and human beings are acting in time. In essence, this teaching says that Though both parties are acting in the same event, and though they work out toward a certain outcome, this occurs without all parties having the same intent. Concurrence, as simply as I can state it, is the idea that God's power is operating simultaneously above and alongside all subordinate powers, according to His decree. And this occurs in such a way that it does not remove the responsibility of any subordinate actors in what occurs. Most often, people use Jacob's statement that what his brothers meant evil for evil, God meant for good. They both had different intentions, 
And though God's will was done in all of it, that does not remove his brother's responsibility from their action in time. Another brief example is Job. You know, there are three roles, three separate roles in Job's suffering. Satan prompted the suffering by questioning the reason for Job's devotion. God then allows Satan to bring suffering to Job. And then two tribes attack Job's family and steal his livestock. And although all these separate roles worked out in some way to produce the same outcome, Job's suffering, all their intentions were distinct. The intentions of the attacking tribes uh, were simply to enrich themselves. And Satan's intentions were clearly to scandalize Job and dishonor God. However, our sovereign God's intention was to refine, refine Job's faith through his suffering, each with different motivations, each with different actions in time, but all the actions occurred concurrently. And just like Jacob's statement, God meant good. In Job's life, those other actors meant evil, but God meant and he achieved good. That is divine concurrence in a nutshell. The reason I mention that doctrine is because throughout the course of this letter, we're going to see that many actors are acting in hist history and today still against the people of God. But we know that all things have worked together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So take heart, my friends, for you are called according to his purpose if you are in Christ this morning. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So let's begin in our text, specifically by looking side by side at the verses, at verses 1 and 2 and 24 and 25. There is a kind of chiastic structure to Jude, and these verses serve as beautiful bookends of Jude's discourse. And in these verses, our brother Jude masterfully gets to the heart of the doctrines of grace. In verses 1 and 2, we see three truths about how the redeemed are acted on by our gracious God. Jude says, we are loved, we are called, and we are kept. And then at the end of the letter, in verse 24, Jude switches and praises the one, the one who with great joy is acting upon us, the one who has set on us his love, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, and the one who will one day present us blameless before himself to the glory of his name alone. And if that was all that I had to tell you this morning, just like Dallas said about that song, we could go home and it would be more than our hearts could ever hold. Like King David in Psalm 23, for everyone in Christ, our cup overflows. So when I read Jude, though, I'm always struck with this language, that he wanted to write about our common faith, that he wanted to write about our common salvation. But he found it necessary to write appealing to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Inherent in these words, I found it necessary, is the fact that he is carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these God-breathed words that are before us today. Jude sat down to write a letter that spoke of our common salvation. And it's interesting to me that two weeks ago, when I had the opportunity to preach and we went through first chapter, the first chapter of First Peter, we were able to be encouraged by our common faith. And still today, 
I find in this text that I share Jude's desire. I would rather get up here and preach 1 Peter again. It's more joyful, and it focuses on our common salvation. See, people have long seen those of us who struggle for doctrinal clarity as somehow legalists or stuff shirts or maybe worse, haters. But I can say with Jude that if it were not necessary, then I and most of the people I know would not go in the direction of pointing out false teachers. But it is necessary. And here, Jude wanted to focus on the joy of our salvation, but found it necessary. Again, by the inspiration of God, he found it necessary to appeal that we would move on from just a realization of our common salvation to a contention for our faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The joy that comes from our common faith is actually the impetus for us to contend for it. As a bit of context, I would note that in verse 4, Jude points out that certain people had been the compulsion for him to write in such a way as to call people off the sidelines and into the fight. That's what contend means. Struggle, fight. Calling them into battle, calling them to contend for the faith. The adversary in this fight is doctrinal error. So in verse 5, he reminds them of what they already knew. Alistair Begg said that this is largely the role of a pastor. He said it was his chief task to, quote, to remind the congregation of the things that we must never forget. Begg once spoke about one time when he had just finished a sermon. There had been this young man that had visited a few times, and he came up to him after the sermon to tell him, Pastor, that was a, that was a great sermon. And then he asked him, how do you come up with it every week? And his response was to note that there is a dreadful tyranny in having this idea that you, or this feeling that you always had to be innovative or creative or come up with something new. He told the young man that expositional preaching removed that tyranny. Begg's words of correction to the young man were, and I apologize, I can't do a Scottish accent, but he said, I didn't come up with it. He came down with it. And it's here that Jude confirms that idea. That we must be reminded of the things that we must never forget. We don't need to come up with the next big thing to market the church. And we, we just need to be reminded of the things that we must never forget. Because in our flesh, we're so prone to forget. Prone to drop our gaze. Prone to feed our flesh. Like the great hymn that we often sing, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We acknowledge that we're prone to wander. So here's the problem. Naive Christians throughout history have always been easy targets for cunning charlatans. And we have this same sort of warning in 2 Peter, in, first, in, the chapter, in the first chapter of 2 Peter, he says this, he says, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
I think it right, as long as I am in the body, as long as I am alive, Peter says, I will make every effort so that you may be able to at any time recall these things. Same idea. We have to recall the things that we must never forget. And next, Jude adds some clarity to the question of who are these certain people. He calls them ungodly in verse 4. And then he calls them ungodly five more times through the rest of this short letter. He refers to them in the third person over and over and over and over again. He uses the words, these people, in verses 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, and 19. And the reason Jude is speaking of these people in the third person so often is so to be clear in our minds that they are to be distinguished from the people of God. He says, these people, they crept into the church. They don't belong here. These people perverted the grace of our God. He compares these people to disobedient angels, to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says these people defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they're blasphemous. Then he calls them, and it's interesting here, he calls them, he, he says they're like unreasoning animals. So Jude was eager to write about our common salvation, but instead he says, guys, we've got this problem. And the problem is nothing new. So he then demonstrates historically that these people have always been a big problem. He says, I have to remind you about what you once knew. What is historically obvious in the text, that the people of God have always had to deal with false brothers, that they have always had to deal with false prophets, and they've always had to deal with false teachers. And in light of this very big problem, Jude says, here's what we must do. We must contend for the faith. Now, as I said earlier, and some, some in our day and age have decided that unity at all costs is the banner that they want to go under. I prefer to stand with Luther who said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. So, I want us to understand what Jude is saying. He says, Brothers, I was going to write you about this common salvation, but we've got this problem, and here's the big problem. As a believer in Christ, you're going to have to contend for your faith. It's a reality. Whether you like it or not, though you might be non-confrontational naturally, it is incumbent on you as a Christian to contend for your faith. Just listen to Paul's charge to Timothy as a young pastor in 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Paul writes this. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all might see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul, like Jude, says this is a matter of utmost importance. 
Literally, eternal life requires the proclamation of the true gospel. God has set it up that way. And Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Jude is pleading for us to see how significant the problem is. He warns us that these people, instead of relying on what the scriptures reveal, instead they, he says, rely on their dreams. This is a re- reason that sola scriptura is so important. We have to know that the word of God is sufficient. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the unity of scripture that's found in the person of Christ. And if I stop reading about the revealed God in the Bible, and I begin instead to dream about who I want God to be, then I become an idolater. Because I've stopped looking to Christ, and I've started looking inwardly instead. If you look at the bestseller list in a Christian store, you're going to find it dominated by people who rely on their own Ideas that don't find their origins in the Word of God, but instead find their origins in their own dreams. And when they do this, they're rejecting the authority of Scripture over their lives. The authority of Scripture as our rule of faith and practice. So they, verse 8, rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude then recounts that these people trust in their own might, which he says is directly opposed to the example that, that he gives about the archangel Michael, who did not trust his own might, but instead defers to God. Verse 9, he says, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Then Jude brings it home. He says, But these people, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Listen to those words. These people, they're engaged in two heresies. They blaspheme what they do not understand, and they're destroyed by following only their instincts. Following their own desires, their instinct, their, their innate natural propensity. The, the word in the Greek that's translated as instincts here means in a natural manner by the aid of bodily senses. Jude says they crept in with their own vain imaginations and Jude pronounces woe to them. That's serious if you get into Jewish literature. Then he builds up on his historical argument that he's making. He says men have been following their own instincts instead of trusting God's word since Cain. Remember Genesis 4, beginning in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had to regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And you can't miss this part of the story, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? 
And in verse 7, he says, if you do well, will it not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God himself speaks to Cain and warns him, if you want to understand the depravity of the fall, understand that. The Almighty of God condescended to warn and encourage a human man, but Cain doesn't follow the words of God. Instead, he follows his natural desire, his animal instincts, and he kills his brother, commits the first murder in this world. Moving on in our text, Jude continues the historical argument. Now, he's already mentioned Balaam's error and Peter also addresses that, and he tells us that Balaam's way is loving gain from wrongdoing or making yourself wealthy from false teaching. Before that, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah and how they followed their, their own desires. Before, before that, he mentions the angels in verse 6. A lot of people, the first question they ask about Jude is what's going on in verse 6. Well, there's a few different views on the identity of these angels. I've recently been convinced by Thomas Schreiner of the traditional view. He makes compelling arguments in his commentary that these angels must be those who are referred to in Genesis 6, where it says the sons of God saw that human women were attractive and took for themselves wives, and they had children born to them. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail on that, but the argumentation does make sense to me. I really only want to bring up, bring up that point to say this, the identity of these angels, their identity in time doesn't really matter to the point that Jude is making. The point is that these angels, Jude says, what we know about them, what we're sure about them, Jude says they didn't stay within their own position of authority but left their proper place. They are condemned for their action just as Sodom and Gomorrah, he says. Jude says, who likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So what we know is that these angels rejected authority and followed their own desires. Then he mentions Korah's rebellion. You remember from Numbers 16, Korah and the 250 chiefs of the congregation declare themselves as holy, and everyone in the congregation as holy. They just up and declare it. But Moses says, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. And if you know the story, then you'll remember that's when, about the time the ground split apart underneath them and swallowed them up and then closed back. See, they too rejected authority of God that God had invested in Moses, and they decided instead that they would follow their own natural instincts. Then, as is typical in a chiastic structure, Jude comes back full circle to this earlier idea that people have crept in when he compares them now to hidden reefs. Verse 12, I'm not a sailor, but with some basic research, I think you can see what hidden reefs could do to a ship. And why is that? It's because they're hidden. Unsuspecting sailors wouldn't be alerted to the danger below, and that can have 
obviously devastating effects on a ship, on a boat. Another allergy might be an iceberg. For me, I, I get that. We all know the story of the RMS Titanic and the iceberg. They didn't see it in time. It was hidden from them until they hit it. And it sank the unsinkable ship. Don't miss this contrast in verse 12. Jude says they are like hidden reefs at your love feasts. This is sort of a poetic description of our gatherings where we often engage in the Lord's Supper. He says, these people feast with us without fear. A true believer, when they hear this very dire warning from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty uh, uh, concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. True Christian understands that. So as true Christians, we examine ourselves in the fear of the Lord. But these people, they engage with no fear of God. Jude says they feast with us without fear. Jude says these people, these hidden reefs, they're like shepherds with no regard for the sheep, but only instead care to feed themselves. They're like clouds, and we know about this in San Angelo. They're like clouds that promise rain, but no rain ever comes. They're like fruitless trees. This, of course, reminds us of Matthew 21, where one morning as he was returning to the city, Jesus becomes hungry, and there was this fig tree by the wayside, and he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to that tree in verse 19 of Matthew 21, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Greg Lanier said that it's easy to see from that that fruitlessness leads to judgment. Simple. These, tre these trees that are mentioned in Jude, even worse, he says they're not only fruitless, they're actually twice dead and uprooted. They're not even connected to the root. Continuing in verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now Jude is pleading with us today to understand the gravity of the situation that we find ourselves in. These people have always tried to plague the people of God. And they are present among us. They are bad news. And our response must be to contend for our faith. In verse 17, Jude moves us back to reminding us of the things that we must never forget. In this case, it's the words of the apostles that he brings up. And he brings it up to drive home this idea that there will be scoffers. The apostles said there would be. Don't be surprised when there's scoffers. 
There will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. They will, they will cause divisions. They are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Then Jude says, in our stance to contend for the faith against this internal foe, that we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. When we gather together in this congregation, we come together, we sing hymns, we hear the word of God proclaimed that we would be built up in our faith. And we pray according to the Holy Spirit that he would lead us in all truth, that he would comfort us, that he would help us to remember the things that we must never forget. In verse 21, Jude makes two pleas for us that we would keep ourselves in the love of God as we are in this battle and that we would be patient in this battle to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The task at hand here is to contend for the faith and to deal with these people, as Jude calls them. And if we're going to deal with them, it requires that we are grounded in God's love, assured of his love for his people, and it requires his patience that we would wait on Christ in his mercy. So as I begin to close, Jude makes it clear that in our contention against doctrinal error of these people, that we must remember that there are other groups among us as well. And the way we go about contending for our faith must at all times glorify God. We must have mercy on those who doubt. They're not these people. They just need the proclamation of the gospel. They need us to lovingly share it with them. They're not these people. We need to save others by snatching them out of the fire. They're being led astray by these people. We should love them. Share with them the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel, the words of life, as we engage with all these groups of people. And we have to keep three things paramount in our hearts and in our minds. Our deeds and our words have to be rooted in mercy and the fear of God and a hatred for the contaminating effects of sin. He says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And knowing that it, is, it was sin that had stained and defiled these people who have crept in to corrupt the church, Knowing that sin was the cause, we are to take church discipline seriously. We're not to wink at sin. It's not mercy to fail to deal with sin. It's not mercy to fail to preach repentance. Instead, it's weakness. He says we are to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. I think it's incumbent on us here to understand the tension of the fact that God has called us to. Paul says, for us to speak the truth in love. We must tell the truth. We must proclaim it as often as we are able. But we have to check our own motivations. We're not speaking the truth to tell somebody off, to make ourselves look good, to think higher of ourselves. Our motivation must be a loving motivation. Paul continues, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
So let's remember the things that we must never forget. Remember at the beginning of Jude's letter, he says to those who are called, we're called, beloved in God, we're loved and kept for Jesus Christ, we're kept. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, us who are called, who does the calling? He does. We are acted upon by our gracious God. And Jude says, we are beloved in God. We are kept for Jesus Christ. Who loves us? Who keeps us? He does. And that he must take us to that same place that Jude gets when he when we get to the point that we join with him in verse 24, that our only response to those facts, that we are loved, that we are called, that we are kept, we join with you just naturally in verse 24, and we praise the one who with great joy is acting upon us, the one who has set his love on us, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, and the one who will one day present us blameless before himself for the glory of his name alone. Would you pray with me? Dear Holy Father, we acknowledge that we need to remember these things that we must never forget. We want to contend earnestly for our faith. We pray that you would keep us rooted in your love and in your mercy as we contend for the faith that you have once for all delivered to the saints. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak your truth and that you would put your love in our hearts. Lord, we are people who, are, who want to become more and more like you, living in your perfect love in everything that we do and in every word we speak. Lord, give us a love for your word. Help us to proclaim the gospel to all those who would listen. We love you and we praise your name this morning.